Hey, it's Sound and Groove Podcast. Right back at you here on notthepublicbroadcaster.com as well as musicofevansmind.blogspot.com. And it's uh, part two of an episode theme I started out in the last one, you may have heard, I hope. <laughs> if you haven't, go back and listen now. <clears throat> it was uh, Songs of the Celestial. So we're talking about music from outer space. Not necessarily UFOs and aliens and all that stuff. We're talking about things like... Things you can see in the nighttime sky, or even sometimes daytime, you know, uh, the moon, moons in general, I guess, planets, stars, comets, you know, anything that's flying out there, even spaceships, yeah, we'll even say that, things things that are uh, moving around in space, anything like that, and uh, that sort of cosmic avenue of things is what uh, falls, what, what's encompassed under this banner that I've chosen this theme. This is part two of it. Uh, I, I thought this was a really fertile subject to mine, so uh, here we are. We're back for what, tip, what is actually officially the second 2017 episode, uh, second of six, so way more to come still throughout this summer, fall, and into the uh, early winter. You'll be getting them, that's for sure, here on the Sound of Group podcast, and I'm going to start off with a guy named J.J. Kale. Now, he was a Fantastic, but understated electric guitar specialist. I mean, when I say that, I say he's picking style, the way he would uh, combine wah pedal with country bluegrass and jazz sort of guitar, uh, guitar stylings. And uh, originally, he was a recording engineer out in the 60s and wasn't really, you know, a huge success at it. And he moved back to uh, his native Oklahoma and kind of got engrossed in the scene that became known as the Tulsa Sound. And when Eric Clapton had a somewhat of a minor hit on his first solo album with a Kale track called, uh, a composition called After Midnight, he uh, got his solo career started in 1972 with an album called Naturally. And uh, usually his uh, albums are one-word titles like that anyway. And then the Oklahoman uh, really got going then. Kale, uh, Kale's biggest champion definitely was Clapton, who covered several of his songs, almost adopted that laid-back, laconic style. Uh, Kale kind of performed with things were a little like closely mic'd, heavily trebly, you know what I mean? And not a ton of, you know, bottom and bass on the sound of his music. And he had these whispery vocals sometimes buried in the mix. But you'll hear it uh, here on this track from 1974 called Cajun Moon. Now, often a signature sound that Kale had was using a drum machine, but uh, not in this particular song. However, you know, I'm just pointing that out that he was known for his unique sound, and this one is kind of the same. So from 1974's album, Oki. Here's Cajun Moon on the Sound and Groove podcast. Let's hear from J.J. Kale right now. Cajun Moon, what does your power lie as you move? the southern sky You took my bane Way too soon What have you done Cajun moon Someday babe When you want your man And you find him gone Just like the wind Don't trouble your mind Whatever you do Cause Cajun moon Took him from you Cajun Moon, what does your power lie as you move across the southern sky? You took my bane way too soon. What happened? 
Okay, there you go with the first track here on this part two of uh, Songs of the Celestial on the Sound of Groove podcast. That was Cajun Moon by J.J. Kale, who, uh, as I mentioned in the uh, lead-up to that, the introduction was a uh, huge influence on 70s and 80s Eric Clapton. He really enjoyed the laid-back sound of J.J. Kale and incorporated it into his own work. Plus, they actually did a collaboration album in 2006 called The Road to Escondido, uh, that, uh, yeah, I mean, that was a long time coming, obviously, for those two guys to get together. But uh, J.J. Kale really didn't do that many uh, albums after that one there. Uh, in terms of his own career, he did uh, one called Roll On, and uh, that was it. Uh, he passed away uh, from heart attack uh, not too long ago, actually, in 2013. Uh, but, he, you know, he's a veteran. He'd been around, been going for a while, even though his solo career didn't start until the early 70s. He was 74, but uh, yeah, there's a track right there that uh, it really does evoke images of the bayou and the swamp, that uh, track, Cajun Moon. But the next one, uh, it's a little less of a uh, you know funky Louisiana type of affair. It's called Sun It Rises, the lead cut off of the Fleet Foxes' self-titled debut in 2008. A very uh, retro kind of folky group, but with tight harmonies. A lot of people compared them to you know Neil Young and Crosby, Stills, and Nash of the... Uh, uh, with their sound and the Hollies even, but I think they're you know really standard is a lot different. It sounds like a sort of a rustic cabin folk music. It's hard to explain campfire stuff, but oh the depth of sincerity that's you know missing from a lot of uh, people who try to evoke that era. And Robin Pecknold is the you know big songwriting uh, genius behind the band. And from this uh, album, this is kind of has a little bit of an intro called Red Squirrel, but I cut it out of here just to get right to Sun It Rises. The main part of the track not the medley thing going on so much and uh yeah this is from their first album which is universally acclaimed as a great debut an instant classic and so on and so forth highly critically regarded in 2008 they followed up with one out al- an album that was its equal if not better called helplessness blues in 2011 and uh just last month just in june they put out their third album finally after a long hiatus called cracked up after several solo projects so that's one I can't say I've heard yet, but I would like to delve into. But let's delve into Sun at Rises first. Here it is, the Fleet Foxes on the Sound of Group Podcast.
There you go, the uh, wonderful Fleet Foxes with their ethereal, almost ghostly harmonies um, with uh, one of the many tremendous tracks on that debut album, the first cut actually, called Sun It Rises. Coming on the heels of uh, some appearances at uh, festivals and the concerts and a couple EPs that caught the attention of the underground indie rock press and then sort of exploded into a general international uh, phenom and in particular in the UK where they always sort of gravitate and, and find more commercial success these kind of indie f groups uh, they had uh, Fleet Foxes uh, was an EP a self-titled EP in 2006 it's very different because it's very um, it's mainly electric based it's kind of a little more like sounds like the Smiths or something or uh, Ryan Adams you know somebody with a little more of a um, twang to them but then they stripped it down to go mostly acoustic on the EP Sun Giant. Most of the tracks on that one ended up on their debut LP. Do they still call it that, the kids? Long player record? Anyhow. Let's go to a track. It's a medley called A Handful of Stars slash Stars Fell in Alabama. It's a little jazzier, obviously. This is more like classic vocal pop material, I would say. This is from a collaboration album between the wonderful vocalist Mel Torme and a uh, little Canadian connection here for all you Canucks who listen to this uh, podcast. And I suspect there are many because the website, not the public broadcast, is on his base out of there. Uh, it's from an LP called Mel Torme, Rob McConnell, and the Boss Brass. So it's, it's Mel Torme accompanied by Rob McConnell's Boss Brass, big band. And uh, they later put out an album called Velvet and Brass in 1995. But this one here was uh, somewhat of a triumph, and it's... Uh, you putting their great work, of course, with horns, uh, that being uh, Boss Brass, led by Rob McConnell, who passed away, unfortunately, in 2010. Um, you do get a lot of the classic old things. You know, they do Just Friends, September Song, and uh, House Is Not a Home. It was actually less of a jazz one. It's Burt Bacharach, Hal David tune. They go all over the place for standards, right? But this one here uh, combines a couple. But yeah, Mel Tomer considers it a career highlight for him in his long and checkered career, as he called it. And uh, hopefully you'll consider it pretty good, too. It's a handful of stars. Stars fell in Alabama. Mel Tomei and the Boss Brass. Here we go. that left my heart romantic scars We stood so near to heaven that I reached clear to heaven Gathered you a handful of stars Sweet romantic hour When love began to flower with moonlight through the trees like silver bars And as the night grew older I reached across your shoulder Gathered you a handful of stars I never dreamed in my imagination A sea Fairy land where no one else 
Okay, there you go, Mel Torme and Rob McConnell with his Boss Brass Band covering a handful of stars, uh, combining it in a medley with a, uh, Stars Fell Over Alabama. So it really fits with the whole stars theme. Uh, the twinkling beams of light in our celestial our celestial bodies in the sky, rather, and uh, that's kind of what we're going for here. One of the songs that evoke that wonderfully, and I think that does it right there. McConnell was uh, the... Uh, accomplished trombonist of his group and uh, usually uh, scored the charts and arrangements and was it just yeah a legend of Canadian jazz but unfortunately died of liver cancer I think it was at the age of 65 and uh, Mel didn't uh, live quite as long he died at 74 I believe in 1999 so unfortunately those two legends are gone but uh, hey their music lives on eh right anyhow uh, we're going to move on to uh, a kind of experimental singer-songer by the name of Sufjan Stevens. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that or Sufjan. It's kind of a, derived from a, a Muslim word, actually, meaning warrior or swordsman, actually. And uh, even though he is uh, open about the fact he is, uh, has strong Christian beliefs, he doesn't really promote it much in his music and sort of separates the two and doesn't really comment on it. So it's kind of a rarity in that he, you know, I... Uh, Tries to be ideal about it, an idealist about it, and sort of separate the music from the religion. But uh, it uh, definitely does, you know, influence some of the work he's done, obviously. And he's done a lot of thematical, topical things, too. And he did an album called Michigan, and then followed up with one called Illinois. that covered themes of that state, and the city of Chicago particularly. And uh, really uh, caught a lot of t- attention from critics. was on Best of Lifts for that year, uh, 2005, as well as for the decade. And the first track on that one's called Concerning the UFO Sighting. 
and it's uh, more piano based, but uh, we're going to put it on for you right here because I haven't really played a track yet about UFOs, although we did on the last part one do Mothership Connection, of course, so that's a spaceship right there, which I guess if you saw it in person would be considered a UFO. <laughs> Anyhow, um, short little ditty here that kicks off uh, that tremendous album, Illinois. For an artist that I uh, admit I need to do more exploring of as well, but hey, there's more time for that, you know, to come. Anyhow, so let's choose Sufjan Stevens on the Sound Group podcast with Concerning the UFO Sighting. Okay, Sufjan Stevens there with Concerning the UFO Sighting from his tremendous 2005 album, Illinois, uh, here on the Songs of the Celestial Part 2 themed podcast. It's Evan Dobigan's Sound and Groove podcast, exclusively hosted, well, I guess co-exclusively, on my blog, musicofevansmind.blogspot.com, where you'll have an article for every podcast I've done pretty much. Since uh, about 2012, maybe since I or 2013, I since I switched over from a now defunct entertainment online magazine called Press Plus One. <laughs> Go back and listen to the old ones, and you might uh, know what I'm talking about when it comes to that. But anyway, that's a little bit of a history for you. And uh, also, for uh, you'll find me hosted on NotThePublicBroadcaster.com, a wonderful blog, and uh, I guess you can call it pop culture, politics, entertainment, sports site. And uh, yet, that I am happy to be part of and uh, to be content that'll really get your um, brain stimulated, I can tell you that much. Yeah. So, as we move on here in our lovely themed podcast that I've already touched upon, there's another track for you coming up called Satellite. Of course, we see lots of those in outer space. If you know, and you're in a non urban area, you can really see a lot of that flying around in the sky at night if there's no clouds. Along with the stars, you'll see things moving out there, and I learned that from, you know, some days of camping. Not that I loved camping, but my favorite part was always looking up and seeing what I could spot in the sky. So, you know, that part of it I dug. Do people say that anymore? I really dug that. Anyhow, whatever. Uh, so this track called Satellite is by Elvis Costello from his 1989 album Spike. Uh, found him making his first album in almost three years. He was away from the attractions. It was all on his own, and he hadn't done many albums with just his name. I think My Aim is True in 1977 was just on his own. And he did an album 
under the banner of the Costello Show in 1985 with as he used various bands, including the Attractions. But then he went back to them for another album at the end of 86 called Blood and Chocolate. Uh, and then this time he was all out on his own. And it was a while before, I guess, he did another album with the Attractions anyway, until the mid-90s. So this one finds him branching out and doing uh, his Elvis Costello thing, uh, dabbling in some folk and some classical tones. But uh, yeah, so let's take a listen to this cut from 89 by him. It's called Satellite. And here it is on the Sound of Groove podcast. She looked like she learned from a series of still pictures. She's madly excited. She throws her hands up like a chunder. She looks like an
So there was Satellite from Elvis Costello's 1989 album Spike here on the Sound and Groove podcast. Uh, that particular album for him came after what for, well, by Elvis Costello's standards, it was a long time between records because he uh, hadn't put an album since September of 1986, and this one came out in, uh, I think, February of 1989. And it was his first album just attributed to Elvis Costello since his debut in 1977 called My Aim is True. In between then, he'd done almost every album he'd done was credited to Elvis Costello and The Attractions except for 1986's King of America, which was uh, credited to the Costello show, featuring the Confederates and the Attractions, so he used two different backing groups on that particular record. But yeah, he was with a new label. He had um, he had crossed over to Warner Brothers for this particular album, Spike, and that came after many years of being associated with Columbia Records, of course. And yeah, so uh, this sort of uh, uh, marked different... T- time of Costello's career where he sort of was more of an independent type artist, you know, kind of making more low-key records that really were, you know, uh, delved a lot in classical music. He was more experimental. And, uh, you know, that was kind of a hit-or-miss type of thing. You know, he wasn't really as strong in the 90s as he was in the 80s, but he tried his hand at just about everything. He started to show, really, that he had uh, influences and uh, interests in almost any genre you could name, even country. <laughs> So, with that said, let's go to a group that was a, kind of a contemporary of Elvis Costello and the Attractions in the late 70s. And, you know, they were in that new wave thing with a little punky edge to them. And they sort of liked a little bit of that heavy bass sound with a little ska and reggae influence more than Costello. But they could rock out and sort of sound a bit more uh, bar, you know, pub friendly too. And I'm talking about uh, The Police. And they had a guy who was also steeped in a little bit of jazz, kind of like you know, a wannabe jazz master, all these on the bass, when Sting. Of course, uh, Gordon Sumner was his real name, but he picked up the nickname Sting, supposedly because of a uh, favorite sweater or jacket he wore that was uh, black and yellow striped. Anyway, uh, so the police formed in the late 70s and really kind of took off commercially right away with their first album, which was called... Uh, Outlandos D'Amour, and then this follow-up, Brigada de Blanc, in 1979. Not a strong studio album, but uh, still had quite a few uh, standards uh, for them, and they were starting to break into the American market at this point. You know, Roxanne was some single that had been a huge hit in 1978 that everybody knew, but this one here is a track called Walking on the Moon. Very sparse, very kind of dub reggae-centric, I would say. And the police were still going for kind of a more... Uh, stripped-down trio sound, but later they added a lot more layers and a lot more synthesizers and keyboards on future albums. And after the big success of Synchronicity, you'd think they would uh, only have a short sabbatical when they announced they were, you know, parting ways temporarily, but it turned into a many, many decades uh, parting, and they only reunited the tour, I think, maybe uh, late late, uh, aughts, as they say, 2009, maybe 2010. Anyway, this is the track we're going to play for you here on the Sound of Group podcast. It's called Walking on the Moon. It's by the police from 1979. So here it is, right in the Sound of Group podcast. Thank you. 
There you go. There's Walking on the Moon by the Police from 1979. It followed up the first single from that album, Regatta de Blanc, which was a number one UK hit, Message in a Bottle. And this song, too, reached number one. So it was establishing what a uh, uh, commercially viable group the police were. But it's very spare, kind of, it's really reggae-influenced, even compared to the other stuff that the police did. Supposedly Sting wrote it after a concert they did in Munich where he'd uh, gotten drunk afterward and he started playing this riff that came to him while he was all in a daze and started walking around his room playing the riff and uh, making up words about walking around the room and then later he thought, well, that sounded kind of silly so he changed it to Walking on the Moon. And of course, a few ideas here and there from uh, Andy Summers on guitar, Stuart Copeland on drums and you've got that song right there. Interesting backstory, isn't it? Yeah. So, uh, but here's something a little more cutting-edge and groundbreaking even uh, than that song was in 1979, for sure. It's 1982's Planet Rock by Afrika Bambada and the Soul Sonic Force. Now, he was a really a pioneering DJ at the forefront of this kind of electro-funk uh, hip-hop movement where, you know, taking the sort of street... Uh, phenomenon that uh, hip-hop rap was in the late 70s and marrying it with a lot more like you know craft work and techno influences basically to try to appeal to the club scene he was one of the original innovative uh, beat-breaking DJs that was on the New York City scene where rap really kind of germinated I guess you could say and then before spreading nationwide in the 80s I guess and um here is a track, the tra- a track from 1982 that many p- people call a pillar, a touchstone of the hip-hop world. It's based around uh, a few different elements, including uh, Trans Europe Express by Kraftwerk, and uh, uses um, you know a few samples here and there, a few motifs lifted, uh, just as hip-hop does. But overall, kind of just a real ahead-of-its-time song. It's from 1982, but it sh- certainly sounds like something you would have heard years later, and... Uh, I guess pointed the way to a lot of the music that's very popular today that combines club house techno with uh, hip hop. You know, it just seemed to be a natural combination. And Arthur Baker was a very innovative producer on the scene in New York City, and he uh, worked on this track, produced it for uh, Africa Bambata, who was head of what was called the Zulu Nation, a group of uh, socially aware rappers and 
DJs that uh, yeah that uh, put together their uh, their minds for some of the best early hip hop work the, the stuff that laid down the uh, the, the groundwork that uh, so many great artists later on uh, tread upon obviously I mean there's got to be somebody who uh, lays the foundation right anyway here it is Africa Bombada and the Soul Sonic Force with their cutting edge 1982 hip hop track Planet Rock here in the Sound of Groove podcast party people party people then you'll get funky so sign and force then you'll get funky the Zulu nation then you'll get funky yeah just hit me just taste the funk and hit me just get on down and hit me that bot just getting so fucking hot hit me
Rock, just a real futuristic, spacey type of song from 1982. Composition, I guess, track, whatever. I mean, it's really kind of more of a pastiche of a lot of different uh, techno and funk uh, sounds that had been available at the, you know, for them for them to put that together with at the time. But it really pointed the way to the future toward a lot of, you know, how it was going to go with remixes and dance tracks and club tracks, you know, because even the great hip-hop artists today aren't so hardcore and so dedicated to just the one thing that, they, you know, they basically do their music and that doesn't get reinterpreted or remixed. And sort of the DJ becoming a very more powerful musical force than before, you know, because in the 70s, the... uh the culture and the inner cities and stuff and then the dance clubs all melded together eventually and now all of a sudden DJs were putting together songs that were you know uh, assembled from other songs you know like a kind of a melting pot of music and uh, well you know that's kind of a dominant commercial force I mean these days it's not just good enough to have melody and singing and uh, you know writing arrangements and chords sometimes people just have to straight up sample things or put together something that sounds like it's geared right toward the DJ hip hop club scene which is a kind of an unfortunate thing because it gets a lot of music gets pigeonholed that way and people aren't really trying to express themselves any differently they're all doing it the one way so yeah I don't know it's kind of uh, at the time that what they were doing there was sort of a reaction to a lot of uh, slick and uh, processed corporate manufactured pop music that people like Afrika Bambaataa but anyway rant uh, i guess i'm gonna have to cut short because we don't have all day here to do this <laughs> we're gonna move on right we got one more track for you here on this uh, songs of the celestial part two podcast of the sound and groove podcast of course with evan doping your host here on not the public broadcaster.com just all reminding you just in case you forgot or if you just dropped in now to hear this this track here is from the pretenders a great new wave band that kind of uh, combined the look and sensibility of punk with uh, a little more of the 60s uh pop rock sound you know a little bit more of the traditional thing just kind of, a lot of groups are doing that Ramones did it and everything like that um but they were a little more hard-edged and they had the great combination of melody and and real uh gritty rock riffs and things like that you know like it was like the stones the kinks all those old 60s influences but updated for uh you know a new wave crowd here at the end of the 70s and it was formed by Chrissy Hind who was from Ohio she had come a few years before to move to England uh, to write about rock music and stuff and then see if she could get her own band going. And eventually that hard work paid off and formed it with uh, Martin Chambers on drums and James Honeyman Scott, a very inventive, melodic guitarist, and Pete Farnden on bass. So with Chrissy Hine being sort of the tough, uh, no-nonsense front woman of a band of you know three Brits, three men, it was a unique uh, setup that uh, sort of showed that women could have that kind of masculine role in a band that didn't have to just fall back on the sort of you know usual feminine thing or even be a confessional singer songwriter and this is a instrumental track that still sounds a bit spacey it's out there and you know in our universe kind of you know like traveling that's the sense that's what you know visions i get from it it's called the space invader but check out pete farn is providing a really you know chunky bottom here and martin chambers too with some drums but james honeyman scott's a real star musically the band i felt there's some nice rhythm work by Chrissy Hine, of course, but he's got like such a great combination of uh, Keith. It sounds like he's you know a great combination of Keith Richards and George Harrison. You know that he can play those melodic uh, styled riffs. Anyway, uh, let's get to it here. It's uh, the Pretenders from 1979, their debut album with Space Invader on the Santa Group podcast. <laughs>
Well, there you have it. There was the Space Invader from the Pretenders in 1979 on their tremendous debut album. They did one more called Pretenders 2 with that original lineup. Uh, not quite as good, and things were starting to sour a couple of years in as uh, Pete Farnden and James Honeyman Scott were nursing uh, strong drug problems, and uh, Honeyman Scott died in an overdose, and then Farnden was kicked out of the group for his addictions, and he died a year later, and the Pretenders were in a state of flux. But that uh, was unfortunate because they were quite a, a unit with great chemistry from the outset. Anyway, that's the end of this podcast. We're going to just sayonara for you. Uh, we'll see you next time on the Santa Groove Podcast. Hope you enjoyed. Take care. 